Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It is the Philosopher's Stone podcast, TPS podcast. What the hell is up? A little bit of a hiatus again. Skipped a week, but we're busy bees. How the hell you doing, Sam LeBooin? Dude, we didn't skip a week. I think we skipped last week. We did. No. Oh, oh yeah. We didn't record, but we still have an episode. Yeah. Yeah. We recorded t- twice in, in, in one week so that we didn't have to have a gap week, right? Is that what happened? Because we're professionals? Exactly. We, we plan ahead, think ahead, measure twice, cut once. Yeah. We don't have a, any sort of any semblance of a of a posting schedule that is uh, like at no, most podcasts, you know, they go every Wednesday. You can count on us. <laughs> but us, it's just somewhere in the week, you're going to get a fucking huge present in your in your mail, your pod mail. So, yeah. Every episode is a surprise. It's great. Yes. Yes. Check it. Check, just check every goddamn day. Just like I do with our empty email box at tpspodcast420 at gmail.com, <laughs> which hasn't gotten an email in over a month. So you can be the first. I have to bring it up every episode. I'm trying to guilt trip people, you know, into uh, <laughs> engaging with us a little bit. Uh, nice. So we both, I mean, I think we both had pretty busy weeks. I had a, uh, a pretty big, I guess they would call it a life event. At a life event? Diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> that's a daily event. I don't think that counts. <laughs> I celebrate it. <laughs> no, that's not what I wanted. No, that's not what I meant. I got engaged. Oh, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. It was uh, quite the day. The whole thing went off without a hitch. And now, you, now you're going to get hitched. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm getting hitched. Yeah. And uh, both of those phrases use the word hitched. Very, very good. Yep. It was like planning a heist for like a month. Everything went exactly to plan. I was actually amazed. There was so many variables that could have fucked it up and none of them happened. So it was, I was pretty happy. <laughs> the surprise was complete. Everybody knows that if they're not completely surprised, they, will, they have to say no by custom, okay? Some people, it takes them 20 times to get engaged because they keep, you know, she reads a text she's not supposed to see. Someone slips up and lets the beans spill, you know? Some third party that has no idea there's an engagement going on somehow lets them know something's happening. And none of that happened. It was some close calls, but it was, uh, it was a good day. Yeah, big life event, I guess. And Sam, you started doing comedy again. Tell me how that went. Tell me how it felt up there. Blinding lights, the glory, the women, the power. How was it? Well, none of the lights have been bright so far. The lights have all been like pretty, pretty mild. In fact, I don't think there's actually even bean lights yet. Really? I don't think so. So what the hell do first timers comment on when they get on stage? <laughs> no, nobody says anything about like, oh man, those lights are bright just because like there are no lights. It's just like on a patio or on an upper floor. Oh, really? There's no like bright stage lights. Hmm. It's not like the rooms are bad. Like they're, they're nice rooms, but they just don't have like big stage lights. Yeah. I mean, you definitely want some good lighting. It, it, it tells the audience that there's something that people know what they're doing are going to be on stage. You know what I'm saying? There's a, there's a lot of subtle things going on when there's a stage and a light, good sound quality, and not a lot of bar noise. Then people are like, oh, shit, this is like a real show. This isn't just a bunch of people getting up and trying to flex their dream for a second. Yeah, well, these are Toronto open mics, so <laughs> that's literally, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard about the wasteland that is the Toronto open mic scene. It's, uh, it's nice. <laughs> Where we have open mics, we do have bright lights, and almost to a person, if it's their first time, the first things out of their mouth is, oh, those lights are bright, every single one. Yeah. We used to do a drinking game whenever there was a new person out, we would, <laughs> if they said it. You had to drink, and we drank a lot. Oh, yeah. Everyone would say, even, even people who wasn't their first time. Yeah. I think that club had particularly bright lights, and they were particularly close to your face. Yeah. So it's very hard not to say, like, holy shit, those things are bright when you get up there. <laughs> hey, how about this? How about you expect there to be lights in your face if you're planning on doing stand-up comedy? God damn it. You see, Sam, the thing was, I was already a consummate professional on my first 
time stepping on stage. So that might be the difference between me and about 98 of the population that try stand up, which is about 0.2% of the population. Oh, yeah. This makes me very rare. Very rare man. So how did it go? Tell me about it. It was good. There's some, some good comics, some bad comics. I would say uh, definitely a little rusty. It's like my first set in like a year. So definitely a little rusty, but got into the swing of things. That's to be expected. Got that laugh, ride the wave, as they say. How'd that first laugh feel? Oh, it was good. Missed that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. So you're going you're gonna to be, do you plan on doing, you know, multiple shows a week? I think I can do at least two. There might even be three that I could do a week. But I'm going to aim for two a week. I've been doing two shows a week, which is like pretty good. Like, I think a good pace to like get myself back into it. They've been longer sets. So I, I feel like that's been good. I don't like getting burnt out by having to do like eight hour days of work and then going out every night to do comedy. I don't know if it really benefits me as much as it does other people personally, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think two, two or three a week is pretty good, at least for me. I'd rather have like two you know, 10 to 15 minute sets than four or five minute sets. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I dig that. Yeah. I dig it. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Yeah, it was good. Um, yeah. But uh, some interesting comics here in Toronto. There's one guy, this Indian guy. I think I told you about this already. He like... Yeah. He was doing his set. It was all about like racism against Indian people. And then the end of his set was like, Talking about how he wishes he could say the N word and how it's not fair that he can't. <laughs> and then, like, he was the first person who ever thought of it. He's like, "But I have a solution. I identify as black." Whoa! No uh, one thought of that before. That's not a hack premise already. No. And then he—that was his closer. Was I identify as black? See you later, my. And then drop the N bomb on the audience. Oh, I see. I see. And how was he doing up until that moment? Um, he was like, he had this likable. Uh, Energy, like he was trying to be like really fast, really energetic, trying to like rant and stuff. Likeability goes a long way, longer than it should, honestly, in my opinion. He was he was really likable. He was really likable. And then he just flushed it down the toilet with his closer. <laughs> he was just like, oh, everyone was like, oh, my God. Everyone like groaned at the end. And he was like, oh, was that too much? Was that too much? Uh, you know what? At least he like recognized that he that was a, a big uh he probably knew that was going to go one of two ways, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you trace the etymology of that word, the British did use it to refer to pretty much anybody who was brown in their empire, including Indian people. <laughs> yeah, they probably weren't even like taking the time to distinguish between people who weren't, ro- who weren't just straight up white. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, he might be right historically, but like not contemporaneously, I guess. Just the that joke has been done so much at this point. I know it's like so hack. Like, the, why would that be your closer? Like, oh man. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> they're the risk versus reward on that joke is just not. <laughs> oh my god! Like, I could see it in his head. Like in his in his mind, he does it, and like everyone's minds are blown, and they're like, "Oh, this guy's the best!" And like, <laughs> what a genius! <laughs> oh my god! Call Netflix right now! Yeah. <laughs> But uh, no, it did, did not go like that. And his his he brought his like his dad and his sister in law. I think they were in the front row. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> did I? Uh, maybe you were even there for this. But there was one night, uh, open mic night at Dakota's, and this guy shows up with his mom. And this guy's clearly crazy already. Like just the way he's talking and everything. Bringing your mom to an open mic, like yeah. First of all, <laughs> if you bring your mom to like your first time doing comedy at an open mic. <laughs> You're already like, what the fuck is happening in that head of yours? Right. Like, I, I was almost intrigued. Like, what is this going to be? Cause that's my really, like, I get to see good comedians do well a lot mm-hmm. to the point where, like, I almost enjoy shitty comedians doing badly better now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, I almost, I'm more entertained by that than someone that knows what they're doing, like, crushing. I like to see the weirdos go up. And give it their all and completely fail. That to me is like almost, I would almost pay money to see a a real lineup of that happening. Like they have to be giving it their best shot, but failing. That is the key. Oh yeah. I love that. 
But this guy shows up with his mom, sets up a camera on his first night, which is another sign that this person is not going to go. I think he's missing some pieces of the puzzle that are required <laughs> to like progress in stand up. <laughs> and he gets on stage and he's wearing ice skates, like hockey skates the whole time. Huh. And I, I'm just watching him like, if he steps on that mic cord, the whole night is over. The whole night is over. So I couldn't even enjoy it. He didn't even have guards on them? Just naked naked blades? No, just straight up ice skates on stage, dancing around the mic cord that's on the ground. I was just like, oh my God. His mom's filming it. So I just remember his one joke was he like pointed to a girl in the crowd, like a good looking girl, and was like, hey guys, look at her. Isn't she hot? Yeah, she's pretty hot, isn't she? Now imagine her taking a fat shit <laughs> to dead silence. I think his mom might have been like, hey, "Yeah, go, honey, go." <laughs> that's like what a that's like a Tim Robinson character. Yeah, it was like it was like almost like maybe he was filming it. Oh man, maybe he was filming it for like some sort of sketch show he was doing. Now I'm starting to respect this man. If that was the case, then I do respect him because the whole thing was almost too bizarre. I don't even think he referenced the ice skates the entire time. I don't I don't hate that that crowd work. Like I don't hate that. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing like some sort of Andy Kaufman angle. Mm, yeah. <laughs> what else is going on in Toronto? And how's the uh what's the COVID situation over there? Kelowna, our our beautiful debaucherous city is just fucking killing it. Like it's amazing how many more cases we have than the surrounding areas. <laughs> mm. I, I don't know like how Toronto's doing. Um, I think there's more cases, but like so many people here are vaccinated. Yeah, I think we're going back. Like we're going to end up back into like phase one of like full lockdown because there's so much anti-vaccine. Like I don't know what it is about this town, but like it's almost like the rednecks all moved here and it's like their tropical paradise. I didn't, I didn't understand. Like I'd say about probably 80% of my social circle is vaccinated. Uh-huh. And that other 20% is like fucking, I would rather take a bullet to the head than get a vaccine. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's weird. It's sad. It's sad. How did this happen? How did this happen? I, well, it was bound to happen. You know, the other generations got world wars to deal with. This is pretty light, light touch. You know, this isn't that bad. Mm. Speaking of world wars. Oh, I can smell a fucking Segway. Speaking of world wars. How's he going to do it? How's he going to tie it together? Um, you can do it, Sam. Uh, we're going to talk about someone who was, uh, who, who liked war. This guy liked war. Oh. Was it Kratos? <laughs> was it Kratos, the god of war? Uh, n- no. Um, this guy's name was Gay. Okay. He has four names, four like words in his name. Okay. So w- once you figure out who it is, you can stop me. Okay. First, first name, Georg. Georg? That's one word. <laughs> G-E-O-R-G. That's how you pronounce George in German. Georg. Okay. Georg, I don't know. Georga? Georga. <laughs> Second name, Wilhelm. Wilhelm. Stop me if you know who this is. Sebastian Bach. <laughs> oh, um, Sebastian Bach? Johan. Johan, that was his first name. Johan Sebastian Bach. Uh, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich. Oh, Van Beethoven. No. Fuck. Hegel. Hegel. H-E-G-E-L. Okay, was there an acronym that everyone ended up using? Because that's some bullshit. GWFH. GWFH. Like, oh, there goes GWFH. Yeah, I think people just call him Hegel. Okay, yeah, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. Was he, obviously, he's more famous in your circles than my circles. I would say he's infamous. He's like an infamous philosopher. Ooh, the bad boy of philosophy, huh? Yeah. Uh, he's like he's infamous for like two reasons, I guess. First, he's infamous because he's really hard to read. He's very difficult to understand. Yeah, like wingdings. Yeah, like he talks in this really weird, weird way where you're like trying to follow along. It doesn't really seem to make sense. Like I'll see if I can find a quote from this guy. 
But he was very influential on Nietzsche and Karl Marx. He's one of the big uh, proponents of war. Yeah, people talk a lot of shit about Karl Marx, that's for sure. That's all I know. Yeah. Uh, here's a, a quote from, from Hegel. This is Hegel. The absolute idea as unity of the subjective and objective idea is the notion of the idea, a notion whose object is the idea as such and for which the objective is idea, an object which embraces all characteristics in its unity. Yeah, see, I'll stop you right there and say you, you use the word idea too much. Okay, <laughs> switch it up. Look up synonyms of idea on Google and then let's spice this language up a little bit because that is dry. <laughs> also, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, you're not alone. Um, most people think it doesn't make sense. Um, so he's infamous for that, for being like extremely hard to understand. Wow, what a quality to have. That is, <laughs> what an envious quality to have. It's, it's a very sought-after quality in philosophy. You should meet my friend Hagel. He's awesome. He's so hard to understand. So hard. Everybody, he's just mysterious, man. He's got a fucking, he's always smoking darts and he's speaking gibberish in the corner. And you just, something about him, man. You just got to respect that. I've listened to him for four hours a day. I have no idea what he said. It's awesome. <laughs> I've lived with him for three years and I don't know anything about him. Really amazing stuff. I'm <laughs> Never understood a single word he said. Yeah. I could just keep listening to it for days. Yeah. He gave the speech at my wedding. No one, not a single person knew what he was doing up there. Well, that's cool. Does he actually have any substance to his ramblings? Or is there, is this just a gimmick he's got where I'm going to be the guy that's hard to understand? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. He's got, he's got substance. He's got substance. Okay. We might talk about some philosophers later who... People have accused of just deliberately writing gibberish. But uh, this guy, he does have some substance. <laughs> What's the guy, the quantum? Uh, Deepak Chopra? <laughs> yeah, he gets accused of that all the time. We can talk about him. Okay, so Hegel. Hegel was a big deal in the 19th century. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, all the top philosophers in Europe and North America were Hegelians. They were all about Hegel. They loved Hegel. Really? Yeah, he was a big deal in the, in the 19th century. And before we can get into him, let's, uh, let's look at our source. Our source is The History of Western Philosophy by Bertrand Russell. Great guy. Bertrand Russell, I've heard that name quite a bit. Was he a philosopher himself or was he just like a cataloger of philosophy? Oh, no, he was, he was a philosopher, pretty influential philosopher, mostly a philosophy of mathematics and logic. Oh, yeah. Simple stuff. Simple stuff, yeah. Um, so let's get some context here. Uh, so Hegel, he was around during the 19th century, and there were two big changes that had occurred around the 19th century, and these can help us understand Hegel. First change was the increased centralization of power in Europe, okay? Mm. So you know how, like, in the past in Europe, they, they were these monarchies? Yeah. And while it was true that, like, the king had, like, this absolute authority, in reality— there was like this balance of power between the king and or the queen and the nobles, the nobility. Right, right. Where it was like a, a it was, there was a bit of a give and take going on. There wasn't total power wasn't really concentrated in one place. But in the 19th century, power had become concentrated in the state. The state had so much power and the states were starting to unify. So this was this was Germany specifically or Yeah, this is like the 1800s. Well, well this is like all of Europe basically. Right, okay. Like France had uh, the French Revolution and then Napoleon concentrated like all power within himself, conquered a bunch of Europe. And then you've got uh, like Germany and Italy, right? They weren't even countries back then. They were like these chaotic collections of like little principalities. And Right. Here's a question. Might be a little bit of a, a side note. You might know this. Did Napoleon take over Germany, like the, the modern sense of Germany after a unified Germany was established? Yes, he did. Fuck. <laughs> Guess what? A lot of Germans, a lot of Germans were big fans of of Napoleon. They were rooting for him. Well, this German, not so much. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't like the whole hand in the fucking vest move. That was oh yeah, something creepy about that. I felt like he was flicking his own nipple or something. <laughs> <laughs> he has a little like a belly button ring. He just likes to tug on it. His nipples were very low. <laughs> So he knew he could get away with it in every painting. 
Yeah, he had like little weights attached to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was little chains hanging off his nipples that he would just tug <laughs> on during painting. <laughs> I have to keep myself awake. <laughs> <laughs> you paint so slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he, he did conquer uh, Prussia, as it was known then. Prussia. That's so precious. That's where Hegel is from. Prussia. Precious Prussia. But you'll you'll be you'll be glad to know that um, Germany conquered France. I think like three times after Napoleon. That's what's up. 1870. 1870. Actually, this is this is the, the best thing, right? 1870. Uh, Prussia invades France, captures Paris, and then in Versailles they create Germany as a state. Now that's what's up. In Versailles, they sign the documents that create Germany as a state. Oh, what a beautiful day. That's what that U2 song is about. <laughs> what a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, they wrote it about the, uh, the unification of Germany in 1871. Yeah, that's, it's pretty obvious from the lyrics when you really listen to it. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so Hegel's around in this time when power is becoming increasingly concentrated in the state. And as a consequence of this, and this power is coming from colonialism and industrialization. Like the, the state is getting all this money from its colonies, industrialization. They're making all these weapons and stuff, lots of power. And with this power came this new ability to control their subjects, control the individuals. Mm-hmm. And they could do this through, they thought they could do this through education. So around this time, right, you've got all these empiricists and they believe that everyone comes into the, into the world as a blank slate. And they believe that education is the key to engineering society according to the values that the state wants its citizens to have. And so at this point, the power of the state over the individual seems really enormous. And so you've got like Hobbes talking about the Leviathan, and then you've got Hegel. Hegel is sort of like Hobbes in Germany. He's kind of similar to that. He's like Hobbes on LSD, I would say. Nice. So this guy's weird. (laughs) So... Uh, so he might uh, remind you a little bit of the Stoics, but let's, uh, let's get into Hegel. Get into it. We're going to try and get through it. It's a little hard to understand, but we're going we're gonna to get through it. All right. Well, let's do it. I, uh, I'm feeling sharp. I'm feeling on the ball today. I, I think I can get some complex abstract notions to sift through the thick mesh of my brain. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's start. Yeah, let's start dripping some... some some thoughts into the cheesecloth of your mind. <laughs> We're making mozzarella, baby. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So Hegel believed that uh, much of our experience is an illusion. Specifically, he thought that separateness is an illusion. So you might look around and it might seem like things are distinct from one another. Like it might seem like you have a pen and a notebook and a table, and maybe there's other people in your house. And it might seem like all of these things are distinct from one another and separate. But Hegel said that, no, that's wrong. Uh, Nothing makes sense on its own. Everything must be understood as part of a larger whole. Mm -hmm. So you could even consider like a pen, right? Yeah. It's impossible that a pen could be like the only thing in and of itself because the concept of a pen implies that you have surfaces to write on and that you actually have something to write about or draw. Yeah, there has to be a reason that a pen exists. Like the whole knife thing that we talked about a few episodes ago. Yeah, yeah. Similar to the knife, but also true of um, like the moon. The moon doesn't make sense by itself because the very definition of a moon is something that orbits around a planet. I get it. You need, you need something around it to provide context for why it even is. Yeah, exactly. Nothing makes sense on its own. Things only make sense in terms of their relationships to a larger whole. Yeah. And Hegel called the totality of existence, right? Like everything that there is, he called it the absolute. And the absolute is like an organism. It's like a body. Every part of the absolute only has its identity as part of this larger whole. Just like every organ and cell in your body only has its identity as a part of your body. Right. So he he thought this was true about the whole universe. And there's some interesting things here um, about the universe. Any statement that attempts to describe the whole of reality will be self-contradictory. So, for example, suppose you say the universe is a sphere. Spheres have a boundary. And you can't have a boundary 
unless there's empty space on the other side. Right, yeah. But if there's empty space, then that's still space. And so the universe must be more than just a sphere. So it's a contradiction. Yeah, that whole concept, whenever you're talking about the universe or even infinity, like the concept of infinity is just like, our brains just cannot truly wrap our heads around it. Our brains can't wrap our heads around it. <laughs> um, you can quote me on that. But it's just, it's to, it just, it really does not make sense to us as humans. And it seems to be the only valid, uh, like everywhere you, any, at any point, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> There's only, the only thing that explains anything is that infinity is a real thing. Because of that whole thing where you hit the border and what's beyond the border. Or that old thing where an archer climbs to the top of a wall and shoots an arrow at the end of the uh, border of their lands. And then you you just, I don't know where I heard that from, but you know (laughs) what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I I know what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, Hegel, like, we could take that idea and, and do like a little Hegelian thing with it. So this is how Hegel thought, like, how do you make progress when you have like these problems you're trying to understand what the absolute is but anytime you try and make a statement about it you end up with a contradiction so what do you do and so hegel is known for this theory he called the dialectic now the dialectic is about how thought progresses so you start with a thesis and then the thesis creates an antithesis and then you combine the thesis and the antithesis and you get a synthesis the synthesis is like a new truth that you can start with okay so, for example, take a thesis, right? So, for people believe that the Earth was the center of the universe. That's the thesis. But then they find out, oh, actually, the sun is the center of the universe. That's an antithesis. Okay. And then finally, you realize, oh, actually, it's contradictory for the universe to have a center because that would imply that the universe is limited in extent. And that would then imply that there was something beyond the universe. And then that's contradictory. Yeah. So, the universe has no center, is the synthesis. But then every synthesis becomes a new thesis with an antithesis and a new synthesis. And then you keep going through these progressions of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, until you finally reach the conclusion of the dialectic, which is called the absolute idea. Uh-huh. And at this point, you, are, you have arrived at something which Hegel calls the absolute. And the absolute is thinking about pure thought. Because the absolute cannot think about anything except itself, because it is all there is. Okay. Oh, I'm starting to think uh, this guy might have done a lot of psychedelics. Uh, I mean, it seems like it. Like, it seems like he did a lot of psychedelics. So this guy is like, because I remember one time I was, I was, I was, I hate to always bring it back to these psychedelic experiences, but I was convinced I was fully conceiving of what the reality of infinity was one time when I was under the influence of psychedelic mushrooms. I was like, I just kept on saying I understand infinity, which makes no sense at all. (laughs) So if we're talking about this thing, like using that example, like started off, the earth was the center of the universe. And then the counter uh, antithesis was actually the sun is. And then you're like, oh, actually the galaxy, like the universe doesn't have a center. So I think that's actually true, isn't it? I don't think the universe does have a center. There's no pinpoint spot. No, not no, not in the sense like you could point to a place on the map and be like, you are, you are here. You are at the center of the universe. So in some sense, that is the absolute idea of that, right? Um, the universe has no center. Mm-hmm. It might be, might be. I might need you to like, it, this might even be like really hard to even provide like analogies for this whole idea. But is there anything other than. Oh, uh, Bertrand Russell had a good one. Okay. It was like, you can say that uh, like Mr. A is an uncle, and then that's true. But if you say Mr. A is the universe, if you say an uncle is the universe, then you have a problem. Because an uncle can't be the absolute, because to be an uncle implies the existence of a nephew. Right. So anything you can think of will imply the existence of something else. Uh, Okay. The only thing that doesn't imply the existence of something else is the absolute, because it is all that there is. Right. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. That yeah, that kind of helped me a little bit. This is very like abstract shit. Oh yeah. Where you're trying to think of something that can exist without 
having to like something that makes sense without having to relate it to anything else. Yeah. Oh, get 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 ready. It gets better. Oh, it gets better or worse? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's about the, the limit of what I can achieve today. Go ahead. All right. So so Hegel says that nothing is really true unless it is about reality as a whole. Truth is a property of the absolute, not the parts of the absolute. Right. So what is the absolute? I don't know. People will say, let me guess, he's going to say God. Um, I don't think he out and out says that, but he does think it's like a spiritual thing. Okay, well, I can, I can, I can roll with that. I mean, at the end of the day, there, like a lot of people, even if you're not religious, there is this whole idea of the absolute is kind of, yeah, you know what? Go on, go ahead. I was about to say something stupid. I don't, even, I don't even want to. <laughs> just go. Take, take the reins here. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so, the absolute. The first thing we can say about the absolute is like our first guess about it would be that the absolute is pure being. It just is, and it has no properties because for it to have a property would imply that it is in relation to something else, but it can't be in relation to anything else because it's everything. Right. So that's the thesis. The absolute is pure being. But then this creates the antithesis, which is that if the absolute has no properties, then it must be nothing because only nothing has no properties. So the absolute is nothing. That's the antithesis. So now we have the antithesis. The absolute is nothing. Mm -hmm. And we have the thesis. The absolute is pure being. So now we need something like in between these, like what synthesis comes out of these? Let me guess. Let me do this work right here. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Nothingness is the antithesis. Yeah. I'm going to try and just fucking intuition my way past Hagel as a philosopher here. <laughs> and the thesis is that the absolute is just pure being. Correct. Now, when I think about this, the first thing that came to mind was that Higgs boson thing mm-hmm. that gives things mass. Right. Would that be considered something that? would relate to the thesis of absolute be of just being, right? Because that's the only without that nothing would exist, right? You know what I'm saying here? Yeah, you could say yeah, the Higgs boson is part of the you think that that would be part of the absolute because it's part of matter. Yes. Without that, there is nothing. Yeah. But the Higgs boson absolutely does have relations to other things, so it kind of gets disqualified as that for that reason, right? Yeah, it cannot be the absolute, yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, this is... It's tough. Okay. This is, yeah, this is some fucking slalom skiing through my, my brain right now. <laughs> All right, so the, we've got the thesis, the absolute is pure being. We have the antithesis, the absolute is nothing. So the synthesis, according to Hegel, is that the absolute is becoming. Oh, shit. It is... But it's between nothing and being. It is becoming. That was literally my next guess. That was literally my yeah. next guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the synthesis. The absolute is becoming. But then even this isn't going to work because becoming requires something that becomes. So we're still at something that is implying the existence of something else. So we're still not at the absolute idea yet. But this is the dialectic. This is the process, the dialectic process. You're consciously improving your concept of the absolute by make a little progress, then you correct some errors, then you make a little more progress. And this is called the dialect. Okay. But Hegel goes off the deep end with this because he just sort of assumes that the dialectic is also acted out in human history by nations. Oh, okay. And I don't know, and Bertrand Russell doesn't know, and I don't know, obviously, where this presumption comes from. Because he, it, just, it just seems to be something that he assumes, that nations are actually acting out this dialectic towards the absolute idea. Okay. This guy must have been doing, must have been doing shit. Like, he must have been on drugs. Like, we just moved from, like, completely abstract to concrete <laughs> physical stuff now. Yeah, the abstract is literally being played out in the concrete physical of the world. Okay. It's very... He's a big time Protestant. Like this guy was a big, big Protestant Christian. Yeah. I mean, all these old philosophers, they seem to always wind their way to, it has to be a higher power. Some of them. Yeah. Like this guy thought that the history of Germany was like corresponded to 
like the first part of Germany's history was like God the Father, then the second part of Germany's history was God the Son, and then the third part of Germany's history is the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Don't tell me Hitler was the Holy Ghost, because that is not cool, man. Uh, I don't know. I think Hegel probably would have been a big fan of Hitler. Probably been, would have been a big fan. Well, what a swell guy. Because like, you can guess like which nation Hegel thought was the best at advancing the dialectic. I could guess. Yeah, I could guess. <laughs> Starts with a D, ends with an Oichland. <laughs> yeah. So he, he really thought that uh, in every stage of history, a particular nation carries the world through that dialectical stage to the next stage. So, for example, in the past, it would have been Rome and then uh, Napoleon. And then when Hegel was alive, he thought Prussia was this like flagship nation that is advancing the dialectic of history. Oh, he didn't think it was Germany. Well, Prussia was pretty much Germany. Oh, okay. Prussia was like the most powerful state. Oh, right. Because they haven't done the Versailles thing, right? Yeah, this is, uh, this is in like the 1850, 18, early 1800s. Okay. This is going on. So Germany is not a united state yet. Uh. But Hegel's like, influence is like a, a big part of why I think Germany became a state. Like He was very pushing for this unity. Okay. Because everything is part of a larger whole, right? So he takes this idea of the absolute and he applies this to the state. So he thinks that, so like the relationship between the individual and the state, Hegel thinks that individuals owe their entire identity, their self, their moral substance to the state. So he thinks uh, a person without the state is nothing. They don't have any rights. They don't have any moral value. They don't have any identity. Everything about them that we take to be valuable is given to them by the state. The state is like a super organism. That is not a popular view these days, is it? <laughs> uh, it's a little extreme, I would say. A little extreme. No shit. You ain't shit, <laughs> you ain't shit without the state? Yeah. To, to Hegel, an individual human is like a, you're like a cell in a, in a body, like utterly insignificant. Okay. But you better perform your function perfectly and then die. Otherwise, you're cancer. Ooh, damn. Okay. <laughs> so he's not, he's not, he's not like, he wouldn't necessarily respect the type of person that would get, you know, go off the grid. Oh, like a hermit? Yeah. No, I think he would be very against being a hermit. Okay, because I've been watching this documentary about the Unabomber who was a hermit. Oh, cool. And uh, he may not have been part of the state, but he certainly influenced it. <laughs> what did he do? The Unabomber? Yeah. He uh, lived in a cabin in the woods with no plumbing or electricity or anything, and he slowly taught himself how to make uh, bombs. So his first few bombs didn't work very well they didn't kill anyone or they might at best he was able to like maim people so his first like 10 years i don't know i'm chucking out numbers now but the first like half of his career i don't think he got a single person uh he didn't have a single fatal bomb and it was very frustrating to him because he was trying all these new types of bombs and then in the latter half he started actually achieving like so his whole thing was against technology he wanted to stop the technological advancement of society because he thought that was it was incredibly evil. By building bombs? Isn't that ironic? So he started sending bombs to prominent professors that were like... Shouldn't he be like beating people to death with rocks if he's that anti-technology? Well, he didn't like any advancement in like computer tech, so he would send bombs to oh, uh, okay. like prominent okay. professor, professors in like robotics labs and like universities, <laughs> genetic facilities, or anyone who was like at the oh. leading edge of technology. That he would send, he would target those people, not like like specifically computers. Uh, uh, genetic advancements, like people messing with genetic, like the genome project or anything like that, and also AI. But not people working on bomb technology. No, I think he might have liked those people. <laughs> he liked the bomb technology. Keep working on the bombs. Everything else has to stop. <laughs> well, he was using really, like, really primitive technology for his bomb making. Oh, okay. Which is probably why they fucking sucked for so long. This guy's too, like, I, I don't know, like, I feel like if you're anti-technology... You gotta be full out. 
you're an anti-technology terrorist, you got to just be hitting people with rocks or something. Like, own it. Yeah. I think he was more concerned about, like, AI and robotics than anything. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So any, like, kind of, at a certain level, he didn't like the, any sort of automated factory type thing where, like, you were kind of making humans obsolete. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Super smart guy. He was technically a genius, uh, IQ wise. Mm. And uh, yeah, I haven't finished it yet, but I didn't know shit about the Unabomber. I just knew, I knew he hated technology and that he lived in a cabin, which are both true things. But how did he subsist in his cabin? What did he eat? What did he drink? I was wondering the same thing and he didn't really, he didn't really say anything, but mm. I can imagine him just bowing down on ramen that's been made in a factory in China. <laughs> fully automated (laughs) this guy is like so like such a hypocrite like (laughs) yeah that's what i was thinking too like everything you use is could be technically a technology right if you're making a gas like any sort of gadget is technology Mm -hmm. i think he was more on like he was really afraid of like robotics and ai and like altering genetics stuff like that kind of like the kurzweil kurzweil's dream was this guy's nightmare oh man whatever happened to kurzweil I feel like that guy fell off the face of the earth. Well, he's got about, what was his prediction for AI to come online? Was it 2026? Oh, yeah. When was the singularity? 2026? Dude. Or was it 2030-something? I think it was 2026. All these people who predict, like, oh, this is going to happen, like, they're all grifters. Everyone who does that is a grifter. (laughs) Ray Kurzweil is not a grifter. Yeah, he is. If he says AI is going to activate in 2026 and then it doesn't, he's going to be like, oh, I got to move it back a little bit. My calculations are wrong. Well, okay. First of all, I don't think he ever, I don't think he said it as a hard date. I think that was his prediction. He never was like, if it doesn't happen here, it's not going to happen. He's like the, the pillow guy who's like, Trump will be reinstated on August 13th. And then it gets August 13th. And he's like, okay, I'm resetting the reinstatement date to uh, December. Yeah, that's like a ton of pastors like trying to predict the end times too, like when Jesus is coming back. I don't think Ray Kurzweil was like, it's for sure 2026. I think he was like, I predicted to be around 2026. Okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, where, where the hell were we? Hegel? The state. The state. Oh, yeah. You're nothing without the state. You're just a cell floating into the abyss. Right. And that you only gain purpose when you are in relation with your surroundings, a.k.a. the state. Right. So Hegel, he was obsessed with the absolute, the totality of all things. And he had this sort of prejudice towards anything that was not the absolute. So individual humans. He thought freedom was the right to follow the law. (laughs) God. (laughs) You're free if you're fortunate enough to be able to follow the law. This guy's like the ultimate bootlicker, eh? Oh, yeah. And he, he was very opposed to any form of like League of Nations, United Nations, because he thought if there was a, like a world government, then wars would be prevented from happening. And this would be a bad thing because you want to have wars are a good thing to happen from time to time. Uh, who doesn't like a good war from time to time, right? Yeah, exactly. This is the attitude. Once in a blue moon. Yeah. You know, it's like smoking a cigar. You don't want to have one every day, but on occasion. Yeah, you know, after a good meal, nothing like a nice cigar. (laughs) Birthdays, weddings. Once in a blue moon, you need a good fucking war. Yeah. And he thought this wars were good because they help people to realize that most things in their lives are temporary and that they should focus on the absolute, which is forever. And war is a way for nations to advance the dialectic. If Prussia is the leading nation in the world, then other nations have to get out of the way or they're going to go to war. And that's how the dialectic proceeds towards the absolute. Holy shit, that's a dangerous ideology. <laughs> exactly. That's why, that's why I said, like, this guy... Like, and you said he became popular in Germany, huh? That's weird. <laughs> he was popular all over the world. Really? His attitude, this pro-war attitude, like, infected people. And this, that's a big reason why World War I happened was because people had this attitude that war is, like, a good thing for nations to do. It's, like, it's how people prove heroism and live out these values of courage and loyalty and camaraderie. Oh. It was all this romantization of war. 
it's that whole whole lie where like you go to war, you come home a hero, you you displayed courage. None of your friends died. <laughs> yeah. You all got headshots on your first day. Yeah, exactly. This was the uh this was the attitude in 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 Europe and less so in America, but definitely in Europe. There was the Hegelian attitude. Well, they definitely used that line of thought to sell the war to Americans too when there was especially World War Two, obviously, I don't think America participated in World War One, did they? They did, but they joined both those wars at the end. Okay, but in both cases, they were USA was anti-war. Okay, they did not want to join the war, and that's because they had the experience of the Civil War in the United States. Right, which is, I think it was probably safe to say it was the war with the most casualties. Really, up until that point. Oh, up until that point, yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah. I thought they kind of tried to sell the war as like, you know, come, you get to see all of Europe, you know, European women, they're loose. Uh, there's <laughs> good wine. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure they like did try to sell it to people, but like it wasn't as much of a like a pro-war attitude as in Europe where it was almost like, like, yeah, like, let's do it. This will be fun. Everyone signs up together and, and whatnot. Like in the States, they had to draft people compulsory service conscription. War is fun. That's your campaign. War is fun. War is fun. It's fun. It's a good time. Uh, advance the dialectic. Okay, you guys like playing Halo as a child, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> this is just like Halo. <laughs> yeah. Halo, great game. Excellent game. There's a, uh, there's a Clive Barker short story that I thought like, captured the essence of Hegel. Do you know who Clive Barker is? No, but when you first said it, I definitely pictured Clive Owen. Wow. Oh, no, that's, uh, what's his name? <laughs> that's someone else. <laughs> I imagined uh, Children of Men, Clive Owen. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Who's the guy who says... Wow, the Children of Men or Children of God? I forget that movie. I think it's Children of Men. Children of Men is Clive Owen, yeah. Okay. Owen Wilson, there we go. Wow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah. So Clive Barker, he wrote like he wrote like horror. Um, Hellraiser was adapted after his stuff. So this is called the story is called In the Hills, the Cities, and there are these two American tourists in the Balkans, and they get lost in the hills. And there are these two cities in the hills, and it just so happens that they got lost on the same day that these two cities do this bizarre annual ritual, and everyone in the city who is able-bodied. They bind themselves together in this immense system of ropes and harnesses. Thousands of people all bound up together. And when they're correctly bound up together, they create a giant. Oh, God. So they like form their own bodies into a giant body that can like walk around. Oh, my God. That is some Voltron shit. Yeah. The eyes are made of people. There's like a mouth made of people with teeth. That's horrific. The feet are made of people. Yeah. So you can imagine after this thing takes its first step, everyone who is making the feet are dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't matter. Everybody, a lot of people would be dead. Just yeah. anyone who's not like the top quarter is going to die. Yeah. And whenever someone dies, they just like unhook them from the straps if they need to and like toss them out. What a fun little festival they got there, huh? <laughs> yeah. And then the idea is that these two flesh giants fight each other in this valley. Oh my god, that is some anime shit. This guy wasn't Japanese. This is nuts. And then like one of them like trips and falls over. And like I don't wanna it's such a good story, but like these two characters are like walking up this road and then like a literal river of like blood just comes flowing down the road. And they're like, what the fuck? That is that's wild. That is wild. It's an insane story. Yeah. In the Hills, the Cities by Clive Barker. And that's pretty much Hegel, like. What is a nation? What the nation is this flesh giant mm-hmm. that's going to war with other flesh giant nations. May the best flesh giant win. Yeah. And Hegel would say, oh, look, all the people that are bound up in that flesh giant, those are the ideal people because they understand what they are. They're just a, a part of this thing. And the absolute is the giant as a whole. Uh, in, in that metaphor, yeah, the, abs- the, the giant would be like the absolute. Okay. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's pretty much Hegel. Yeah, Hegel, I don't know if the modern world could find his philosophy useful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> seems like there's a lot of bad ideas there. Yeah, like we're going to get into the, the, 
I think we're going to trace philosophy from Hegel up to the Second World War and just sort of see how these ideas, because Hegel's ideas sort of spawned two separate camps. He was very influential on both Nietzsche and Karl Marx. And Karl Marx created communism, and Nietzsche was like a big influence on the Nazis, obviously, the Nazi ideology. Wow, two heavy hitters, eh? Yeah, he created like two of the worst forces in modern history. (laughs) (laughs) I knew, like, see, that's what my gut's telling me. This fucking meat, flesh, fucking giant, tie everyone (laughs) together. That's not going to end up well. No, no. That's kind of like communism personified. It's just a giant made up of smaller people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess what we'll see is, is amazing is that like Nietzsche and Karl Marx couldn't be more different, right? Nietzsche is all about the ubermensch, the superman who is like above everybody else. Everyone else has to die so that the Superman can achieve the will. And then Karl Marx is like the opposite. He's like the working person, that poor person. They are, they are what's important in the world. Right. But both of them were sort of spawned by Hegel. So it's, it's inter- we'll explore that. That is interesting that they took Hegel's philosophy and ran different directions with it, but both directions were pretty fucking bad directions. Yeah, pretty bad. <laughs> pretty damn bad for the 20th, 20th century when all this shit kicked off. Well, I actually feel like I might have learned something there today, which didn't happen in the last episode that we not we recorded, <laughs> but the one before that that's going to come out previous to this one. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. Uh, I'm excited to hear more about this motherfucker and uh, how he likes war and shit. Loves it. Just loves it. Yeah, so maybe we'll do uh, some Nietzsche next time. We'll see. Yeah, let's hit Nietzsche and Karl Marx because lots of people toss around that Marx guy's name a lot. And a lot of times I feel like they don't fucking know what he's... I just feel like they don't know. They don't know him. They don't know him. They don't know him. You don't know Karl like I know him. He had a rough childhood, okay? (laughs) He's a good guy. I can can change him. (laughs) I can change him. He said he's going to get a job. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bring him into my functional family and then he'll learn. He'll learn. Uh, you guys can uh, email us. Yes. At tpspodcast420 at gmail.com. I don't know why I keep saying that. You never do. But, you know, you just keep, you just got to keep that flame alive. The eternal flame. Yeah. The eternal flame of our empty Gmail account. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to add, Sam, before we wrap this up? Um, uh, no. Nothing good. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. We'll talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.